Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord. We thank you for your word. And I thank you, Father, for the opportunity we have, truly the opportunity to gather in your name. We thank you that you're here in our midst, that no one's here by chance, but we're all here by divine appointment. And Father, just prepare our hearts even now through your word. And just prepare us for communion as well later on this evening. And Father, I just thank you and praise you, Lord, again. I pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. By way of review, let me tell you a little bit about what happened in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. You know, one of the things I love about God's Word is it's always in the order it's in for a reason. Nothing happens in the Bible by chance, and every word's in there for a reason. And in Mark chapter 8, we saw, right after the, the hardening of the hearts of the Pharisees, we saw that even the apostles had hardened their hearts toward God. Even these men who've been walking with the Lord for some length of time had hardened their heart in their walk with God. And you know, it's a warning to us as believers that we need to make sure that our walk with God does not grow common or grow cold. And the, the, the apostles, it was the feeding of the 4,000, the beginning of chapter 8, and they had just fed the 5,000 not too much earlier. And you know what? When it came time and the Lord said, we need to feed these guys, what did they say? They cried out and said, basically, paraphrased, what are we going to do? Where are we going to find bread that these may eat? They didn't trust in God anymore, and they had lost sight of, uh, lost sight of Him. The Pharisees then, we see, were, came seeking a sign. They didn't come seeking God, they came to criticize. And many people come to the Lord the same way today. They come with a critical heart, not a broken one. And you know what? It's the parable of the sower. We need to make sure that the seed is planted on good soil, especially in our own hearts. Then we see how Jesus heal, um, warn His disciples to beware of the, Phar- uh, of the leaven of the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees, again, were the super religious. They were the people that in their day, people would have said, if anybody's going to heaven, it's got to be them. But the Lord called them hypocrites. And it's, it's encouraging for me in one way to know that every person that came to the Lord with a critical heart, He rebuked. But every person that came to Him with a broken heart, He touched and He loved. So when we come to the Lord, we need not to come with arrogance and self-righteousness. But we need to come instead with our hearts broken and crying out for His help. Then we saw Jesus last week heal a blind man, a sightless man in need of the touch of Jesus Christ. And that's what every spiritually blind person needs today. You know what? It's not our arguments. It's not how eloquent we are. They need to be touched by the Son of God. That's what needs to happen in their life. Then we saw Peter confess Jesus as Savior. How many of you guys remember that? He said, who do men say that I am? And some said John the Baptist and some said Elijah. And you know what? There are a lot of people calling Jesus a lot of different things today. But Peter got it right when he said, you are the Christ. And that's the question that needs to be asked in every heart tonight. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he one of many past? Then you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. Is he the Jesus that's the brother of Satan like the... Like the Mormons would say, then you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. If he's my, Jesus Michael the Archangel, as the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, then you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. If he's the Jesus, the most elevated of all the gurus, who's been most enlightened, then you don't know the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. And Peter said, you're the Christ. And then P- the Lord said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. You figured it out. Pra- you know, and, and he praised him. And you know what's amazing to me? is just moments later, when the Lord said to him that he must suffer and die, what did Peter do? He grabbed the Lord, he took him aside, and he began to rebuke Jesus. Now, that's going from, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, to the Lord saying to him, get thee behind me, Satan. That's not a very good few moment transition, right? He went from the Lord saying, blessed are you to get thee behind me, Satan, in just moments. And that's what happens in our own life sometimes. When we're truly trusting in God and we're conduits for the Holy Spirit, 
God says, blessed are you, and he'll use you mightily. But when we start looking at things from a physical point of view like Peter did, and we start speaking from our flesh, then the Lord will say to us, get thee behind me, Satan. And then lastly, we saw that he, that he said, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. You know what? The denying self part is very difficult. You know what? As people, we want to exalt self. We want to esteem self. You know, the people, the psychologists tell us that the, reason, the problem our kids have today is they don't have enough self-esteem. I'm telling you right now, that is not our kids' problem. They esteem self way too stinking much. Amen? And so do we. Have you, how many of you had to teach your kids to say mine? Right? Mine, mine, mine. No, they learn that all by themselves. That's the Adamic nature at work. They don't need more self-esteem. They need to deny self. We need Jesus Christ's esteem. Amen? And so what happens is said, deny yourself, take up the cross. Denying self is being Christ-centered and, having being, and not being self-centered. Having Christ on the throne of my life. As John the Baptist said, I must decrease that he might increase. Then he said, take up the cross. And that means to be identified with Jesus. Self-denial to the point of death. My favorite verse in the whole Bible is Philippians 1.21, which says this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In those days when someone was crucified, the Roman government would make them carry their cross upon their back and carry it to the place of their own execution. It was, it was a way of, of humiliating the person, but it was also a way of showing them who had the authority. It was letting all of men know that the Romans had the authority. And when they carried the cross, it was saying that the Romans have the authority over me. And we take up the cross and follow Jesus Christ. We're saying that Jesus Christ has authority in my life. Amen? So take up his cross, and then lastly he says, follow me. And it's, that word is in the present tense, indicating a continuous action, literally to come behind. means to attach oneself. That's what the word means. And you know what? Can you think of a better place to be than attached to Jesus Christ? Amen? He says, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, be Christ-centered, not self-centered. Let him take up his cross, give God the authority in his life, and follow me, be attached to Jesus Christ. So now let's pick up in chapter 9, because that's where we come to. And we're going to see now the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus Christ revealing Himself for who He truly is. You know, a lot of us in our own walk, and I'll confess this in my own life, I've been a Christian 34 years. And do you know that during the time that I've been a Christian, that I thank the Lord that I can say that I'm closer to God today than I was a year ago. And my prayer is that I'll be able to say next year, a year from today, that I'm closer to God then than I am now. And we should be constantly growing in our walk with God. It's part of that sanctification process being set apart. Seeing Jesus for who He really is. The apostles are going to see Jesus for who He truly is. Because they still don't quite get it. They're rebuking the Lord when He says He must suffer and die. And He's going to reveal something great to them. Let's pick up in verse 1. Let's go back and read verse 38. I want you to read this. It says here, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when He comes in glory of His Father with His holy angels. That's talking about the second coming. And when Jesus Christ comes back, He will be ashamed of those who've been ashamed of Him. And the Lord has called each one of us to not be ashamed. It takes faith to accept and practice. If any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To live unashamed lives of both Jesus and of his words, because that's what it says in that verse. We need not to be ashamed of Jesus Christ or the words that come from his mouth. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's going to give them a dazzling display of exactly who he is. Verse 1. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, you know what? The only person who ever uses those words in the Bible is Jesus Christ. 
And every time he says, assuredly, I say to you, we should always pay attention to what he says, but now it's of supreme significance. We need to really pay attention to what he's going to say. He says, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Now, some people have interpreted this many different ways. Shall not taste death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Some have said that's Jesus' resurrection as His ascension, and it could have been. Some people say it's the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, because there were people that He's speaking to now that would see that. But you know what? I absolutely believe that if you look at it in its context, every time that you see this verse in all three, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three times it's followed up with the transfiguration. So what he's talking about is, there are some standing right here as he's talking to the apostles and those that are standing there that will not see death until they see the glory of God, until they see Him present with power. And we're going to see that as we take a look at this chapter tonight. We're going to see Him present with power. Look at it, it says, verse 2. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. Now it says that six days... Again, the close proximity between the time that he made that statement that there's those standing here that will see me with power and the time of the transfiguration being so close together makes it very clear in my heart and in my mind that he's talking about him being transfigured. And it says, now those who, who, when he took them up on the high mountain, that's a sign for each one of us, something that should be happening in our own lives. He takes Peter, James, and John. One of the things our pastor over in San Jose always talks about, Pastor Don, is he talks about the fourfold ministry of Jesus Christ. He ministered to the crowd, to the 70, to the 12, and to the 3. The crowd was anybody that would come into his hearing and would hear his voice, most of whom would walk away without their lives being touched or changed. When he spoke to them, quite often he spoke in parables. Parables not to hide the truth, but to give out the truth for those who were truly hungry, who would want to know more. But within that group was the 70, those who followed and walked closer to God. And to them he would reveal even greater truth. But within that group of 70, there was the 12. Now the 12 were the apostles. They lived with Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. And they were the ones nearest to Him. Again, He revealed even more to them. But within that group was the three, Peter, James, and John. And you'll notice that Peter, James, and John are the ones that are called away by God where He would reveal even more to them. And it's interesting to me that some of the things He revealed to them dealt with death. Again, we see them alone with Jesus. Remember Jeru's daughter back in Mark chapter 5. When he went in to heal uh, Jeru's daughter, who went in with him? He left the whole crowd outside and he took Peter, James, and John and he showed him that he, was triumph- that he had triumphed over death as he touched this little girl and she got up. The time when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was praying, submitting himself unto death, who went with him? Peter, James, and John. Here on the Mount of Trans- Transfiguration, he's taking with him again Peter, James, and John. And you might say, what... You know, why is God bringing them? Why does Jesus Christ bring these men? I believe it's because these are the men that were the most hungry to see the deeper things of God. Now, Peter was a guy that made mistakes. He'd just been rebuked and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. But the Lord saw his heart that he was a man who was hungry to know God better. You know what? If you're hungry to know God better, he's not going to hide from you. Amen? If you desire to walk with God, if you desire to know him in a deeper way, then you know what? He'll reveal himself to you. You just say, Lord, show me. Lord, reveal yourself to me. I had a man that's on our softball team. Pray for him. He, he asked me, he said, man, I want my faith to be deeper. Man, I want to have that kind of relationship with God that you guys talk about all the time. And you know what I told him? You absolutely can have it. 
And I've said you can have greater faith. The Bible says in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So you want to have deeper faith? Then crack open the book. Amen? Read God's Word. Ask God to minister to your heart. And He absolutely will. If you're here tonight and you say, man, you know, my walk is not where it needs to be. And well, you know, I remember when I was closer to God. I said this last week. If you're not as close to God as you used to be, who moved? Amen? God doesn't move. We do. We move away from Him. We get distracted. But these were the men that I believe desired the most. And you know what? God would use all three of these men mightily after He ascended to the Father. So He takes them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. You know what? One of my favorite things about being a youth pastor was, and Rick can testify to this, was whenever I would get to go away to camp with the kids. We'd get on a bus and drive 12, 10 or 12 hours with 100 high school kids. And people would say, man, you did that on purpose? Yeah, I did that on purpose. And we would go all the way down to Southern California. We'd go up on the mountain. And I'll tell you what, I've never been there when I didn't see God move in an awesome way. Why? Because all the distractions were set aside. There was no TV. There were no video games. There was no distractions from the world. And by the second or third day, you would see 500 teenagers lifting up their hands, weeping before God and praising the Lord. And I'll tell you what, as a youth pastor, I never saw it once when I didn't weep myself. And you know why? Because God meets you when you set aside time to get away and be alone with Him. Sometimes we're so busy, we feel like we don't have time to be with God. Let me tell you something. We need to make Him the first priority in life. Not give God what's left over. Give Him the first fruits. Amen? And so they went away and they got alone with the Lord. And can you imagine as they were going up on the mountain, they had no idea what was coming. And sometimes when we get along with God, we have no idea what's coming. Amen? We have no idea how much God really desires to reveal to us. That's our God. And He desires that close relationship. So He draws them away and they go up on the mountain and it says, by themselves. It takes them away. And look what it says next though. And He was transfigured before them. Now that's a pretty, that's a $3 word. Transfigured. In English, that, the best word for that would be metamorphosis. And the word means... A change on the outside that comes from within. Jesus Christ was turned inside out before their eyes. And you know what? They got to see Jesus in His glorified state. And I'm surprised they didn't come down glowing in the dark like Moses. Amen? But you know what happened? We know that from other contexts they probably fell asleep, but they were awakened by this. And one thing about these guys, they're always falling asleep. You ever notice that? Always falling asleep. I mean, they needed a jolt cola or something. But these guys were always, they go with Jesus, they fall asleep every single time. So they go up there and, and they see him trans, transfigured. Now, now, how does that apply to my life? How does that apply to your life? Do you know that as every, every single person in this room, if you become a new creation in Christ, if you've been born again, the Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. We should be changed from the inside out. Our speech should change. Our actions should change. Our desires, our love for the things of God. Everything about us should be different than the world. Amen? We're to be in the world, but not of the world. People should look at us and know there's something radically different. If we're fitting into the world, something's wrong with us. We need to change. The reason that the world is the way the world is today, I don't blame it on unbelievers because they're acting according to their nature. I blame it on us, the church, because we're acting contrary to our new nature that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? So they were brought up on the mountain and they saw Him transfigured, transformed, changed. 
We too need to be changed as Jesus Christ has come into our life. Now look what it says in verse 3. His clothes became shining, shining exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Amen. There's no, you can't put enough Clorox in there to make the clothes come out like God can do it. And what's awesome to me is whenever you see light in the Bible over and over and over again, who said, let there be light? God did, and Jesus Christ, the Creator. Amen? Jesus Christ is not a created being. He is God, and He is Creator. And He said, let there be light. And it's awesome to me that when He was revealed in Himself, He was bright and shining light. i got some verses out of the Bible here. Light is often associated with God's visible presence. In Psalm 104, it says, O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover Yourself with light as with a garment, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain. In, in Daniel 7, 9, it says, The Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. His throne was a fiery flame. And I love this verse in Revelation 21, speaking of heaven. The city had no need of a sun nor a moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Who's going to be the light in heaven? Jesus Christ. He's, he, he will shine so bright that all of heaven will be illuminated with him. I'm ex- I can't wait to get there. And can you imagine, they got a glimpse of this when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. They got to see Jesus Christ turn inside out. They got to see who he really is without the, the adorning of the flesh that he took on out of his love for us. Remember when Moses came down from Mount Sinai? What happened to him? Do you remember? His, fl- his face was glowing so much that he had to wear a veil. He had such a, a, an intimate contact with God that he was glowing. Man, I want to be like that. How about you? Amen? Don't you want to glow in the dark for Jesus Christ? And you know what? We can. That's what God's called us to do, to be light, to be like Him. And when they went on the Mount of Transfiguration and the Lord was turned inside out, they saw Him for who He really is. Jesus the Creator is the origin of light. Verse 4. It says, And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So not only did they see the Lord in His glorified state, but they saw Moses and Elijah talking to the Lord. Now can you imagine, you went up on this mountain having no idea what was coming, and now you see the Lord in His glorified body, and you see next to Him Moses and Elijah. I also find it interesting that they recognized that it was Moses and Elijah. These guys weren't living when Moses and Elijah walked around on earth. But you know what I believe? It's a picture of the way heaven's going to be. The Bible says we will know as we are known. You're not going to have to introduce yourself to anybody in heaven. You're going to know everybody. Did you know that? And the reason you're going to is because we're going to be in our glorified body. We're not going to be imperfect. We're going to be made perfect. Amen? So they recognized Moses and Elijah. And some have said, well, why would it be Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus? Well, Moses in the Bible is always a picture of the law. And Elijah is an example of the prophets. So the law and the prophets were speaking to Jesus Christ. And yet, guess what? Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Everything that the law spoke of pointed to Jesus Christ. All the sacrifices that, we, that they did, everything that, that Moses, the Mosaic law, pointed to was pointing to the coming Messiah that was all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Elijah, the prophet, and everything that all the prophets taught was pointing to the coming Messiah. And all of it was pointing to and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. 
So the law and the prophets are there, and Jesus Christ is the one who's in the middle of them. It says they were talking to Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, it says that they were talking to him about his coming death. They were talking to him about the crucifixion. So Moses and Elijah, and that, what does that tell us about heaven? That people in heaven know everything that's going to happen. Moses and Elijah knew that Jesus was going to be crucified. And I, I want to say this too. Moses, when he died, he died. And he was buried in the ground, right? Elijah didn't die. He ascended into heaven. But you'll notice that both of them are alive and well. Amen? And they're talking to Jesus Christ. There's no soul sleep. When you die, you don't sleep till the Lord comes back. Amen? The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'll tell you another thing too. The Bible says it's appointed for man once to live and then to die and then the judgment. There's no reincarnation. There's no second chances. You're not going to be a grasshopper next time trying to elevate yourself to the next level. Amen? The Bible says you live one time, then you die, then you stand before God. And that's exactly what has happened with these men. And they've been glorified because of their faith in in the coming Messiah. And here they are standing right next to Him. I'll tell you what, that gives me great joy. Amen? To know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And Christians die well. Amen? Because we know where we're headed. And these men are standing at his right and his left hand, and they're talking to Jesus about the crucifixion. Now, contrary to the apostles' lack of understanding, Christ's suffering and death would not prevent God from establishing his kingdom, but rather it would solve our sin problem. And the cross would make the kingdom possible. And what else I want to say too is, the fact that Moses died the way he did, and the fact that Elijah ascended to the Father is also a picture, I believe, of when Jesus Christ comes back. Because when he returns, the Bible says, those who are dead in Christ shall rise first, right? The body shall come up out of the ground, but then there will also be those who are alive who will be raptured into heaven. Amen? A picture of Moses, who had died, and Elijah, who had ascended. That that's what's going to happen when Christ returns. Verse 5. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, it is good for us to be here. I guess so. Amen? That's a good place to be. Seeing God revealed for who He truly is. Seeing who Jesus Christ really is. Man, it's good for us to be here. There's there's no greater place to be. And again, when I've gone away on retreats, or I've gone away and I've just had a supernatural time with God, I can think of no other place that I'd rather be than just to worship. You know, when you're worshiping till 2 o'clock in the morning with teenagers, God's doing something. Amen? When the guy picking the guitar's fingers are bleeding because he's leading worship for so long, then you know God has met you there. The kids don't want to go to bed. They just want to worship. And man, Lord, I want to be in that place. I don't want to just visit there. I want to live there. Amen? And they said, this is a great place to be. This is a good place for us to be. But you know what? Peter's going to make a mistake. Hard to imagine Peter making a mistake, but Peter's going to make a mistake. Look what it says here. Let us make three tabernacles... One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now he recognizes Moses and Elijah, interestingly enough. But he says, let us make three tabernacles. Now a tabernacle, at the time of the Feast of Booths, they would have seven days where the Israelites would would dwell in these tabernacles. It may have been that he's basically saying, let's build tabernacles, let's hang out here for a week. You know, I just want to hang out with you guys. Let's build one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. We can just hang out here for a week. This is good stuff. We don't want to go anywhere. This is great. But you know what? At the same time, he's putting Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the same plane. And you know what? Nobody belongs on the same plane with Jesus Christ. Amen? You know what? We cannot put the law on the same plane 
with Jesus. The law is the taskmaster, schoolmaster, the Bible says, that points us to the cross of Christ. And if we start trying to keep the law to earn God's favor, we'll never achieve it. If we use the words of the prophets, even though they point to God, and we use them apart from Jesus Christ, we will never find the answer we're looking for. The answer is Him. The Pharisees would miss Him because they trusted in the law and they trusted in the prophets, but they didn't fully understand. They needed Jesus Christ. Now Peter steps up and says, let's, let's do that. Let's, let's have three tabernacles. And I want to say this to you as well. When we're up on that mountain and God's doing an awesome work, I would quite often be the last one to speak at camp. And I would tell the kids at camp, you know what? I don't want you guys to think that when you, leave, when you leave this mountain, you need to take the Lord with you. But the Lord doesn't want all the Christians to go be monks on a mountain somewhere. Amen? He saved us for a reason. And when, as, as we have been born again, we're to take what God does with us up on that mountain and take it down into the valley. Take it down into the place where people are suffering, where people have been separated from God. We need to take what God ministers to our hearts and go out and share it with a lost and dying world. He's called us to be salt. He's called us to be light. And again, Peter had recognized them and he said, let's build the tabernacles. So Peter, you know, Peter's problem was a problem that some of us have too. Peter often would tell the Lord what he thinks instead of listening to what the Lord has to say. You know, Lord, here's what you need to do. Lord, I got a plan. How many of you guys have ever heard that song, Whatever, by Stephen Curtis Chapman? He said, I made a list, wrote down from A to Z all the things I think that, I can, that God can use me, the way God can use me. He said, I, I wrote it all out and gave it to the Lord and thought, man, that's pretty sweet right there. And then he realizes that he takes the list, he tears it up and throws it away and says, Lord, I'll do whatever. Whatever you say. And you know what? That's where our heart needs to be. And you know what? Like right now, some of you be praying. We find out a week from tomorrow whether or not we get this building on Sunday mornings. But you know what? I have total peace. Because God is faithful, God is sovereign, God's in control, and we're going to be wherever God wants us to be. Amen? But if we don't get on Sunday mornings, we're going to find another place. And we have to meet in the park, we'll meet in the park. It's okay. Because wherever we are, that's where God's going to be. Amen? So praise the Lord. So it says here that he says to them, let's build three tabernacles, verse 6, because they did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. Verse 7. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Now, when you look in the other text, God the Father literally interrupts Peter. Remember, Peter was just rebuked by God the Son, right? Get thee behind me, Satan. Now he's going to be rebuked by God the Father when he says, Peter, shut up. Peter, oh, let's get some tabernacles and let's do, and let's do this. And hey, I got a plan. And why don't you know, Mr. I know everything. I know, you know, Lord, you don't understand being a Messiah. Let me clue you on how to be a Messiah. We're supposed to overthrow the Romans. Oh, you know what? Let's, have a ta- let's build some tabernacles up here. Here's what we're going to do. I got a great plan. Shut up, Peter. That's what happened. The Lord says to Peter, This is my beloved son. Hear him. That's some good counsel. Amen? This is the son of the living God, the Alpha and the Omega, the creator of the universe. Why don't we listen to him? Instead of seeking our counsel, our wisdom, and our plan, why don't we trust God? He interrupted Peter while he was still speaking and said the same words to him that he said when Jesus was baptized. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The vision did not end in and of itself. Look what he says to him. Hear him. He doesn't point him to the miracle, the transfiguration. What does he point him to? Hear him. What would that be? That would be the word. Amen? He doesn't say, heed the miracle, even though the miracle was awesome, even though he gave him a picture of heaven, even though he let, he let him see Jesus transformed. What did he point him to? He pointed him to his word. He said, hear him, heed his word. That's the same counsel that God gives us today. Hear him. 
Don't put the law and the prophets on the same level with Jesus. Trust in Him. In the companion text in Matthew 17, it says when the Lord said this to him, that they, to them, they all fell on their face. When God the Father spoke, guess what happened? People fell down and they were broken before Him. But you know what's interesting to me? It says in Matthew 17 that when they fell, that Jesus went over and He touched them and they looked up. And you know what's awesome to me? Is that if we do not know God the Father, there needs to be fear and trembling. Amen? If you don't know God in a personal way, then you should be afraid. You should fear God and fear God's wrath. But know this, God loves you. And He loves you so much that His Son came and suffered and died that you might have eternal life. And if you have a touch, if Jesus Christ touches your life, guess what? You have nothing to fear anymore. Amen? And the Lord touched them and He didn't fear anymore. They says they stood up. So they were touched by Jesus Christ. And I love that. He came and touched them and said to them, Do not be afraid. The voice of God knocks people down in brokenness, but Jesus Christ's touch wipes it away. Before God the Father, we're guilty. But when Jesus Christ touches us, we're not guilty anymore. Amen? Because of what He did for us upon the cross. Verse 8. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus. Man, I'll tell you, that's the best place to be, isn't it? They looked around and Elijah and Moses weren't there anymore because the law and the prophets at some point will pass away, but the Lord will endure forever. Amen? Jesus Christ was pointing people, the prophets and the law were pointing people to Jesus Christ. And they saw Jesus only. How wonderful it would be if we were so focused that we saw Jesus only. May we not try to keep the law, try to focus on the prophets. May we keep our eyes on Jesus only. Peter could not understand why Jesus would submit to the evil men and willingly suffer. The transfiguration was God's way of teaching Peter that Jesus will be glorified when we deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow Him. The cross is not a place of death and defeat, but a place of glory and victory over sin and death. The world's philosophy is, save yourself. God God desire for each one of us is that we would yield ourselves to him amen that's the difference it totally diverts from what the world has to say they saw jesus only man i wish i could do that day in and day out amen don't you wish that through every circumstances you could look at it through the eyes of jesus christ well we can if we will seek his counsel and ask him to guide and direct us verse 9 now as they came down from the mountain he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the son of man had risen from the dead I guess that San Jose traffic finally ended. Everybody's showing up. God bless you guys. We're glad you're here. Must have been heavy. Because of the signs and wonders, many wanted to make Jesus king. And they said, you know what? We're looking for that Messiah that's going to overthrow Rome. But because, that, that, because of that, the Lord said, don't tell anybody because they have the wrong desire. They have the wrong focus on Jesus Christ. They want Him to rule and reign in the here and the now. And some people come to Jesus the same way today. You know, if you become a Christian, everything will be perfect in your life. How many of you have ever heard that before? Right? The cruise ship to heaven. Right? That's not what it's like. You know, when we walk with God, we are going to be persecuted for our faith, the Bible says. We're going to go through difficulties. But here's the difference. And, and I want to say this too. I hear people say it's difficult to be a Christian. I, I refute that. I say it's difficult not to know God. Amen? I say it's difficult to walk around this world blind and dead in your trespasses and sins. When you're born again in Jesus Christ, then bring it on because it's all good because God's in control. Amen? No matter what happens, praise the Lord. I can, there's no, nothing I would rather be than walking with Him. There's no place I would rather go. And you know what? He said, don't tell anybody because they won't understand. They'll just want to make Him king. Verse 10. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what the ra- raising from the dead meant. 
Now, does it show that the apostles still don't get it? Had he not told them already that he was going to die, that three days later he would raise from the dead, but they still didn't understand. The same thing can happen to us today. If we're not, we need to say, Lord, help me to understand. Give me wisdom, Lord. I need your Holy Spirit to illuminate your word to me. Without you, I cannot understand anything. So what they had seen, they didn't fully understand. Old traditions die hard. The tradition was that the Messiah will come and overthrow Rome, and then we'll all rule and reign on earth. And now the Lord's bringing a different message, and it's difficult for them to hear. Some of you in this room tonight have grown up in churches that are heavy on tradition. And some of those traditions have nothing to do with the Bible. Some of you have grown up in churches where you think you've got to fulfill all these rituals for God to somehow love you back. Let me tell you something. Christianity is not a 12-step program. It's a one-step program. Amen? It's believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some of you believe that you can't open and read the Bible because only the priest can do it. Or only the pa- Let me tell you something. God has commanded you to read the Word. He's called you to open up His Word. Study to show yourself approved. That's what the Bible tells us. Don't allow tradition. Don't allow the things of men to keep you away from the truth of God's Word. God so desires to have an intimate, personal relationship with you. You call no man father, save your Father which art in heaven. You don't have to go to any man and sit in a box and confess your sins and have him tell you how many Hail Marys you have to do to be forgiven. Let me tell you right now, you've been forgiven. Amen? It is finished when Jesus died on the cross. We need, nothing, we need Jesus Christ plus nothing for salvation. Amen? So there's nothing else. So don't fall into the trap that tradition is the answer and, and the man-made laws, but it's the truth of God's Word. Verse 11. And they asked Him, saying, What did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now they, the scribes and the Pharisees knew the Old Testament. And it says in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Malachi 4, five says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet. So they knew that Elijah must come first. They knew the Bible, Old Testament, well enough to be looking for Elijah. They may have even argued with the apostles and said, Jesus can't be the Messiah because Elijah's got to come first. Now why would they be asking this question now? Who did they just see on the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah. What, what, what is this? Wait, wait a minute. What have the scribes been saying about Elijah? Because we just saw him. And the Lord's going to clarify and correct them and help them understand what is meant by that text in the Old Testament. It says there in verse 11, And they asked him, saying, What do they say about Elijah? Malachi's teaching was well known. And again, the apostles have been ridiculed because of it. The Pharisees had no doubt argued with them. But watch the Lord clarify it. Verse 12. Then he answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah also has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished that was written of him. Now it says also that, that Elijah, that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. Now some people have taken that way out of context. All it means is he is a type of Elijah. He's a picture of Elijah. He was a fourth teller. You know, how did Elijah dress? How did he dress? Same way as John the Baptist. He wore, you know, he wore skins and ate locusts and honey. And you know what? John the Baptist lived the same way. Elijah was a voice crying out in the wilderness. So was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' best man. It says in the Bible, of men born among women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. But what did John the Baptist say? I must decrease that he might increase within me. The man that Jesus said was greater than any other man had to decrease so that God may dwell within him. Jesus pointed to the prophecies about Elijah. 
but no way precluded the suffering and death of the Messiah. Look what he says. And the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. He's telling them over and over and over again that it was through his suffering that he would be glorified. Not through a military coup, not through running over the top of people, but through his suffering. And you know what? As, as much as we don't want to hear it today, the number one way you're going to grow in your walk with God is through trials and suffering. Amen? When, when are we on our knees the most? In trials. When do we turn to God and just cry out and say, Lord, help me? Not when we got money in the bank and the job's perfect and everyone's healthy. But when difficulties come, that's what drives us to our knees. And if we need difficulties to be drawn close to God, then the Bible says in James 1, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials. Not if, but when. Amen? You're going through a difficult time right now? Praise the Lord for it. Because God is using it to conform you more to His image and to increase your faith in Him. And you know what? If you're going to come out the other side of this closer to God, is it worth it? Is it worth it? It's worth it. Amen? So, and you know what? Here's the, th- here's the life of a Christian. You're either going into a trial, you're in the midst of a trial, or you're coming out of one. Amen? That's, that's the way it's going to be. But praise the Lord, because the world goes through difficult times, but they don't have God. They go through them alone. But when we go through difficult times, God is using it for His glory, so praise the Lord. I, I, hate to, I, I wasn't going to share this with you guys, but this has been one of the most radical weekends. I, I can't even believe all the stuff that's gone on this weekend. And it's totally, you know, sometimes we give Satan too much credit, but the Bible says we battle not with flesh and blood, but powers and principalities, evil force of darkness in high places. Last night, I don't get headaches. I had the worst headache in my life. It hurt me to blink. You know, ever had that kind of a headache where it hurts to blink? That's the kind of headache I had. It hurt so much I could not study for tonight. In the midst of my headache, I get a call from Mike. He's supposed to leave worship, and he's violently sick. I'm thinking, oh, man, what is up? I know what's up. But you know who's in control? God is. Right before we came over here, my wife, the, she's weeding, she's doing it with a weed eater. The, the end popped off and hit her in the nose, and her nose started bleeding all over. The, you know, then the traffic comes. Our child care people don't get here. We show up. We're supposed to be downstairs. They moved us up here. You know what? Is God still in control? Praise the Lord. Amen? Are we still going to heaven? It's all good, and it doesn't matter. So praise the Lord anyway, right? And the good news is that people were here in the worship, and while I were, during worship I was standing where Larry or Vias, looking out the window, and people were standing down there, listening to worship and tapping their feet and praising God. So praise the Lord that we're upstairs, amen? And praise the Lord for whatever happens. And all it did was draw me to my knees even more that God would be here tonight, because without Him we can do nothing, the Bible says. Amen? Well, you know what? I got about half as far as I wanted to go, but tonight we're going to take communion, so I'm just going to stop right there. We'll pick up, I studied to the end of the chapter, I don't know what I was thinking. But you know what? I want to say this. We can see Jesus Christ glorified. And the Lord so desires that we be transfigured, that we be transformed, that we be changed from the inside out. Because if we can get the worship team to come back up here. I want to pray for each one of us tonight. Lord, I so desire that you would not just be part of my life, that you truly would be my life. Lord, I so desire that I'm not going to allow the trials and the things of this world to get my eyes off of you. And tonight, you know what? One of the struggles that we're going to see later on in this text is people stop praying and they stop seeking God and their walk with God falls apart. 
And you know what? If we stop seeking the Lord, if we stop praying, the Bible says pray without ceasing for this is the will of God. The Bible says forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. You know, I hear people all the time, especially in this county, saying they've got to start their own church. Well, all the churches are messed up, so I'm going to have fellowship at home. And you know what? Every church that has people in them is going to have problems. Amen? Because as soon as two people get there, there's a problem because the people are there. It's not because of God. It's because of the people. Right? Amen? And so, you know what? We need instead to say, Lord, use me. Show me how you want to use me. Man, drive me to my knees. My whole life belongs to you. I give it all to you, Lord. When this time has come and passed, only what I've done for Christ will last. Lord, I've seen the glorious works of God. I've seen what an awesome God you truly are. Help me not to walk away. Help me not to, to faint when trials come, but to trust you and to serve you with all my heart. Now, tonight we're going to do communion a little different maybe than what you're used to. This is what's, what... I was praying about it today, what we should do tonight. And instead of us passing it out, here's what we're going to do. The worship team is going to lead us in worship. And what I want you to do is take a moment and just seek God even before you come up to take communion. The Bible says that we should take it with a pure heart before Him. So just say, Lord, examine my heart. Show me, Lord, areas of my life that need to change. Areas where I'm holding on. And Lord, where I haven't given it to You. And just confess to Him and, and quietly to yourself, Lord, take this away from me. And communion is simply this. It's in remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. The Lord's Supper says that as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The bread is a picture of His body. And Jesus said, this is broken for you. It's a picture of the suffering that Jesus Christ went through to pay the price for you upon the cross. The juice or the, uh, the wine in the Bible is the picture of His shed blood, His redemption, the price that He paid. So tonight what I want you to do is just take a few moments and pray. And after you've done that, come on up and get the elements and go back and sit down in your seat or wherever you want to sit. You can sit in the back. If you're a husband and wife, you're here, or your family, and you want, to, you want to take communion together and pray with each other, I want to encourage you to do that. But I want you to take this and make this a time between you and God where you truly seek Him and you so desire to say, Lord, conform me to your image and remember how much He's done for you that we might live for Him. Let's pray and then we'll worship. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. And we thank You, Lord, that You died for us. Lord, that we have been made new creations in Christ if we know You. And Father, I pray for anybody here today that doesn't know You, Lord, that, that Father God, that their eyes would be open and they would see, Lord, that it's not by might nor by power. It's not by any will of their own. It's not by their righteous works or deeds. But it's by trusting in You as Lord and Savior. Open their eyes to their need for You. May they pray even right now. And just pray a simple prayer of, Lord, come into my heart. I confess that I'm a sinner, that I need you as my Savior, inviting you in. And Lord, we know that it says in your word when they do that, that they'll be born again. And they can take this communion as one of your children. And Lord, I just pray for each one of us, Father, just search out our hearts, O God. Reveal to us areas, Lord, where we've held back from you. Conform us more to your image, Lord. And may we, may we truly never let the cross grow common. We thank you, Lord, so much that you suffered for us. The, the price that you paid, that you were separated from the Father. And Lord, just out of what an awesome act of love, the greatest act of love in the history of mankind. So Lord, we just ask, Lord, again, just inhabit this moment, just minister to each person here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.